0: All right, everyone. So welcome to the fifth episode of our Therapy Insights Resource Roadmap show. We're going to talk about some ways to use all the different resources in our library today and um, our access pass. And if you are subscribed to our access pass already and you have the printables feature included, you have instant access to everything that we're talking about today. If you're not and you're interested, you can go to our website at therapyinsights.com and sign up today. If you're listening to this episode on a podcast or watching from YouTube and you want uh, credit for CEU today, go to um, our website, therapyinsights.com and find the form for the SLP or pediatric SLP resource roadmap show, episode number five, and you can get your certificate of completion today. I'm your host Bailey, and we have our writers, Heidi and Tasanya. Welcome. And Megan is in the background pulling up the resources to see on the screen. Um, I need to verbalize our disclosures since we do offer CEU credit. So on the show, we are talking about Therapy Insights products, and we are all being paid by Therapy Insights to run the show today. So we have another amazing collection of resources. I'm loving the topics this month. Um, We have lots of variety, again, from articulation to executive functioning. We have information about pediatric medications and speaking valves. So let's dive in. First, we have, I think, Heidi, yours is first. Yeah. So this one is called, um, pack my backpack, executive functioning activity for young kids. This is a five page resource and it has beautiful graphics on it. There's a fun, um, visual schedule at the end. So Heidi, tell us more about, um, what you were thinking with this piece.
1: Well, I think, um, that my idea for it came, you know, we've been thinking about executive functioning a lot and it seems like our subscribers really want more resources and, and information on it. And definitely for younger kids, it sometimes feels overwhelming because maybe they're not writing yet. Like a planner's too much, like they're not going to sit and write out a list of what they're going to do today. Um, but we've got to think of creative ways to kind of get them engaged. So yeah, um, and I also thought as a parent, this is like a very stressful event. (laughs) It's trying to get kids out the door with all of their stuff in their backpack. Uh, So the first page just has instructions that you could read to the child. Say, we have a couple backpack options. So they have some ownership. They can pick one out, uh, the visual, you know, the little graphics. And then you the instructions are then you would make a list, like you would brainstorm this with the child to see kind of where they are with understanding what they need to bring to school. Um, and then you could use it as a, like, an activity that you could use multiple times over the course of your work with them, because you could revisit it in two or three weeks and see if they can actually give you a longer list than, say, just two things to put in their backpack. Um, so you make the list together and you try to then we have the graphics that have like the laptop, a coat, gloves, boots, field trips, permission slip, a bus ticket, binder, water bottle, lunchbox, and homework. So you could obviously also make other ones. They could draw some, or if there's other things that kind of fit where, you know, maybe the region or country you're living in, there's other things kids take to school. We just wanted some broad, um, broad ones that maybe apply to a lot of people. Uh, and then if you kind of want to level the activity up there's this picture of a house and it ha- it lists all of the items and then it it offers them a place where they can brainstorm like do you find this in the be- in your bedroom or in the bathroom or is it something that's in the kitchen uh so that they can sort of think cuz it's it's a multi-level process it's not just the items and knowing what they are it's like how do you get them yourself and like where would you go and so really trying to think of this activity as like the first time you're probably going to have to do a lot of hand holding with them and really show them what you're talking about and maybe even engage with their parents or caregivers to understand things they need to be taking. Maybe they have a medicine, you know, you could make a little medicine um, picture that they could also use for this activity. Uh, and then as you go and do it each week or every couple of weeks with them, you should see them be able to do it quicker and faster and be more accurate. And then you're also wanting to check in with the family. Like, how's this going at home? Like, are they actually able to do this? Like, should you time them? You can make things like that fun. You know, maybe one way to measure the success of this activity is like, can they do it faster in the practice activity, but then also maybe at home. Uh, And then our designer put together a really nice like morning routine Visual, So it has like, what time do I wake up? When does school start? How do I get there? And what time do we need to leave? Um, And then has a little checklist of like eating breakfast, brush teeth, put on shoes, uh, make my bed and then pack my backpack. So I think these are really great for our younger elementary school kids and even younger kids that go to a daycare or to like a, you know, maybe they go to their aunt's house for the day, but they still need to like take some items with them. And it's really easy to understand. It's very visually um, appealing. And even if it doesn't fit your exact or the child's exact plan, you see how you could build something comparable so that you could see what um, you wanted them to be practicing. So anyways, it's a cute resource. It's great for back to school or summer sessions. I was thinking summer therapy sessions to kind of get ready for that transition back to school in the fall.
2: This is great, Heidi. I was thinking just what you were wrapping up with in the end, um, how this is a great resource for little ones who uh, may have difficulty with like transitioning. And if it's not exactly what's in their day, it's definitely a good sample of what caregivers could use to build something that's more tailored to tailored to their needs Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: yeah i think sometimes we assume if we just tell a parent like make a visual schedule or map out how you'd want them to do pack their backpack it, it feels kind of overwhelming or it's hard to quantify so this is again like this resource might work perfectly for somebody like it will have all the um activities and things that they need in their backpack but if it didn't it's not hard to add to it or just help families visualize what we're kind of trying to talk about to get them to practice at home with their child so
0: love it there's so much you can do with this like even you were saying like in the summertime using it but really just throughout the school year like coming back from a break I know some schools around the country are like moving to more like year-round and they have longer breaks so kind of helping them with that transition back to school
1: yeah. And again, it could be anything, you know, I, I do, even as a parent now, I, when I was making this resource, I sent out word to the other writers and Bailey, like, is there anything else you should put in your backpack? Like, I don't know what goes in them these days. Cause you know, a laptop, is that a thing or the iPad? So, um, but yeah, hopefully it'll be a flexible starting point for an activity for you, for some of our subscribers.
0: Yeah. I love it. I love the multi-use all right, let's move on to our next resource. To you wrote this piece. This looks like a four-page resource, and it's titled "How Pediatric Medications Impact Speech and Swallow." I love this resource. I think this is kind of fresh to our library. We don't have anything like this, and it's just a massive chart filled with tons of information about different medications. So, tell us more about um, your thoughts behind this piece.
2: So Megan and I actually collaborated on perfecting this, Um, so in creating this, I wanted to have a resource that uh, interns could use, that junior clinicians could use. We have a lot of SLPs who transition between environments, whether they're in the school primarily, they're transitioning into nursing home, acute care and other settings. Um, So I wanted to have something that could be used as like a pocket resource. So you clip it to your clipboard, you pin it up at the nurses' station or wherever you document um, and it could be referred to. So um, as SLPs, we do look at labs. We don't use it to um, necessarily assess or diagnose, but we can use it to support our findings, our recommendations, our suggestions, our, um, our, our recommendations on like um, continuing or discontinuing oral feeding status, for example. So with this, what is listed are specific medications that can impact uh, speech and language, and then medications that can impact swallowing. So um, I find in working with uh, junior clinicians or interns that um, schools are beginning to teach a little bit more about the use of labs, but many are coming and thinking that it's just about feeding and swallowing, but it also, there's a lot of medications that can also impact uh, speech and language production. So this resource has it all in there and it specifies medications that are specifically, um, I'm sorry, I think I, I may have said labs earlier because the other resources that's coming up course, but um, they go hand in hand. But this um, this resource, I'm sorry, talks about medications, not labs, that's coming up. It talks about medications um, and how they can impact um, feeding speech and swallowing. Um, and again, uh, it lists uh, examples of those medications and what relevant side effects can be um yeah, so again sorry about that I totally had them both in mind because uh, medications and labs are both part of our uh assessment process so I I mix it up but this one specifically for anyone who's listening and not tuning in with a visual um this one is specifically about medications so yeah, I, yeah. go ahead,
1: go ahead. you go ahead
2: Heidi go ahead
1: I was thinking just like you said, like for interns or new clinicians, just having this in their, their binder, whatever it is, whether it's online, just because you can't list them all to them in one sitting and expect somebody to remember them. And I even think I would have some traction at work now using this with some of the doctors when you're having trouble, like explaining to them why this might be related, or maybe we should have orders on this child or this person would probably need some outpatient follow-up. This would just give me a nice, quick way, again, so I don't have to have them memorized. I mean, over time, I've learned a lot of these, but not they're not frequently used. So I think this is just, a, like you're saying, like a pocket guide that sort of, if you're a, a beginning clinician in a medical setting, um, it would be super helpful. I assume, do you know, it? it apply, I mean, I assume these drugs are also adult drugs. You know, you, even though it says pediatric medications, it could see you you some crossover the okay, there's some,
2: so crossover. some crossover, but I wanted to make it specific to peds because okay. there's a lot of resources for adults but um, right. these are specific to peds, but they also cross over into adults as well. Uh, And another reason why I wanted to create this is because I've seen many times in reviewing documentation, clinicians will write C, under the section for medication, they'll say C, nursing report, or C, doctor's note," C, medical charting. And it's like, how could you leave such an important component out out of your assessment? Um, And I think that a part of the reason why it's often left out is because clinicians don't always feel um, confident or competent when it comes to medications and how it can impact speech and language and swallowing. So I think this is just a great resource for clinicians who feel like they experience that or um, for maybe school programs who want to implement it into one of the courses that it's, it pertains to or again, in a clinical setting for not just uh, fe- clinical fellows and interns, but for more junior staff or for staff who haven't been working fully in um, settings where medication um, is really an important aspect to diagnosing and treatment, and what we might find at bedside, yeah, this I is.
3: We'll see have- so, um The sorry, I'm going to turn my video on. But one one thing that was interesting putting this together and collaborating on this is, I learned that there are certain medications that are traditionally thought of being used for adults, like in particular Parkinson's medication. And there are cases where they might, a doctor might use that for a child over the age of three. And I think that's what's interesting about all medications is like, we have an idea of what they're used for, but often doctors have to get creative and, and try different things. And maybe we might think that it's for an adult, but it's being used for a child. There's also a lot of medications on here um, that are used during surgery. And so that was really interesting to read the effect that they have. So again, those are drugs that are used for both children and adults. Um, but yeah, pretty comprehensive list. Thanks for letting me interrupt.
0: I love that.
1: Yeah, I like how they're you say what they cause too, because that's you know, maybe you can remember the medicine, you can't remember. And it's organized really nice, like each, well, one page is for speech, and then the other three are more related to swallowing. And it's really obvious, which does which. Um, And I was just thinking at work, like this could be really useful Um, in my acute part of my job to like, help think through like, okay, if they're on, like Megan was saying, they come out of surgery, like what drips are they on? What things are they on? When when can we agree that it's appropriate for us to engage? I think we get in a lot of um, tense little discussions sometimes with attendings about that. Like when is it appropriate to actually assess their swallowing or their speech? Because I can sit and say, well, they're on this whole set of medicines. Like they're, they're impacted. This isn't a good baseline if that's what you're trying to get us to do. So I will definitely be printing this one and putting it to use soon.
0: (laughs) That's what I was thinking, Heidi, like maybe print them out in like a smaller scale and have them laminated almost like the pocket guide that you were talking about to Sonia, just to have a quick, like easy to reach, especially during like chart review. If you get a new patient coming in and you want to know like, okay, what is that medication rather than Googling it? It's just, it's right there probably because like Megan said, this is pretty comprehensive. Um, and then I also was thinking back to times in the clinic, like where I used to work and a child would come in and they just, they were kind of like acting differently, for lack of a better phrase, there. Um, and then I would find out their medication change. And then I would have to like do some work on, okay, what medication are they on? How is it affecting um, where they are, their progress? Like I felt like there was some regression with some of the kids that um, would change medications and just understanding how that might affect them and their progress and kind of giving them some grace there and understanding what's going on. Um, yeah, this is a fantastic resource. Awesome. Let's move on to the next one, Heidi. You're up. So this is a beautiful four page articulation resource. Um, really nice images. looks like there, um, are, um, dealers in Africa specifically. Um, so there's kg CH, and sh, um, four different pages with, um, hidden picture activity. So tell us more about this, Heidi.
2: Um,
1: so my daughter loves to do the, this like hidden picture activity idea, like, oh, you're just looking for things. And so I thought, oh, let me transfer that to some target sounds. Uh, and velars are, and affricates are ones I feel like an outpatient I'm targeting a lot. Um, along with that, you know, maybe we can build out the other ones too, at some point if these are popular, but, um, basically, yeah, it's, it's an activity that's easy to do together like with the child or if you're in a group setting, it's easy to stage the activity out and be like, okay, I'm gonna give you this. Um, you you circle all the all the animals that start with the K sound. So you it's kind of an independent activity or you could do it as a group together. Um, so it's a very versatile thing and that the drawings are really cute they're really engaging they're not boring it's easy to see um I think and then I was thinking you know there's so much color that if you don't get our print if you're printing it yourself print it once this is definitely a laminate laminate thing (laughs) don't print these every time a child wants to use them but um kind of like I use, well, um, oh, I still do. I don't know why I said past tense, but I have a binder for each of my sounds, and so this is just a great activity. It doesn't take any prep work for you or the child, really. It's kind of it's a it's more straightforward than than something. So I was thinking that's that was a lot of why I made it. It is. I was like, I think when I'm thinking about sitting sitting in a therapy session, and I'm like there's just that down moment or a kid comes in or something's not working and I need to shift gears. This type of activity is just really useful. And you could even also um, use it to have conversations like that's silly. The goldfish looks like it's drinking the coffee or, you know, things like that. You could have, use it in a lot of ways. So this is again, kind of a multi-use resource but again it's all the drawings currently are targeting um affricates and velars and uh, the sounds have them in initial medial and there's pictures on each page with the sound in initial medial and final positions so then you could say okay now your turn to use it in a sentence or like let's write a story about this crazy picture where there's burritos and cats and elephants and you know, a pinata. So things like that. I think that, yeah, sometimes you just need those easy to grab activities that just, you just hand it out and it's like, okay, everyone try this for a minute and then we'll come back together and figure out how to use it even more. So yeah, our designer did a really good job of making them interesting and cute. So (laughs)
2: It's really pretty, I like it. You know, with articulation, it can be so tedious sometimes and it can be, if you don't stay on like your toes for being creative, it can be boring. Sometimes clinicians say that. And this is a really fun activity and I can see that you can definitely maintain a child's interest in the task with something like this. And you can definitely work on like, how many of our little ones come in with uh, articulation impairments in addition to receptive language or like attention concentration um, difficulties. So we can definitely work on something, combining that with this, like find the bear and find the whale. Now repeat after me, depending on what level they're at um, with performing. But this is so, this is really pretty and colorful and I could definitely see it being an activity that helps to maintain um, interest during the session.
1: Yeah, I agree. Articulation can get dry sometimes, especially, I feel like kids working on these two sounds in particular, most likely, you know, they have some like a lot of them have some, these are difficult, more of the difficult sounds or later, sort of later developing sounds. So it's hard to keep those kids attention sometimes. And they're, they're smart enough and old enough to know they're not just going to list if you're just flashing cards at them, they're going to, that's going to last about six minutes, maybe um so yeah this is just something different and yeah if you're a subscriber and you like them (laughs) on the survey we can make more for other sounds if you like them but we'll see how they go
0: I was gonna say yeah we need like every sound with
1: (laughs) I didn't want to overwhelm our design I mean it was like she did a lot of work to pull these and they're beautiful so I was like I don't want to say let's do all the songs in one resource but if, (laughs) if they are popular we could bring them bring some more
0: yeah. Test the waters. I also like this kind of it's one page, which makes it easy for everybody. And like, maybe another quick idea is like getting little, this little, you know, colorful magnets with the magnet wand and, you know, placing them on the images and, um, however you want to do that, um, you know, uncover this one and, and let's see what, what picture it is and then pick it, pick all of them up and just, you know, another way to possibly keep it engaging. Like you said to Sanya, you have to keep it really um, interesting for these kiddos for sure. Awesome, let's move on to our next resource today. Okay, so Tasanya, you wrote this one, the importance of lab values for clinical swallow assessments. This is another four page resource just packed with lots of awesome information. I learned a lot myself um, when you created this, Um, such a great reference. So tell us more about this.
2: So this is what I initially started talking about. (laughs) Um, but I think that these lab values can go hand in hand with the medications as well when you're doing your clinical swallow assessments and even for instrumentation. So, if you're doing your modified or your uh, fees, you can also use this as well. And as I started saying earlier, you're not using it to diagnose, but more so to support your findings, to support your recommendations, to support um, any anything that you are suggesting as far as maintaining or discontinuing um, non-oral feeding status. Um, and I know that might vary as far as like what your role will be depending on state to state, but um, as an SOPs, this is something that's very important when we're trying to decide um, the safety of ongoing feeding. For example, um, when we're looking at um, if there are any clinical indications of dehydration, any clinical indications of malnourishment, any clinical indications of um, lung infection, such as aspiration, such as pneumonia. Um, And when we're trying to help to uh, make the most ethical uh, decision for our patients uh, when it comes to diet, consistency, texture uh, that we're recommending. So uh, this specifically lists the lab values that we would look at as SOPs. There's a number of labs that would come up when you're looking at labs for children. Um, The labs won't be as frequent as we see with adults, um, but these specifically list the lab values that are important to us, such as albumin, potassium, um, and more, you'll see if you get the resource. Um, And again, we just use it to support what our recommendations might be. So for example, if you have a little one that you're working with, and um, let's say you want to support your suggestion for a uh, 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 modified barium swallow study, and you wanna support why you want to perform a modified barium swallow study or a flexible endoscopic and vibrational swallowing, and you're saying that at bedside there's no overt signs of aspirational penetration, so there's no coughing, there's no throat clearing. However, the lab values say such and such and such, um, indicating that there potentially might be, let's say that the uh, white blood cell count is showing a certain number, you're looking at your albumin and your creatinine, and they're indicating that there might be something else going on. It supports your justification for suggesting that the physician gives you a script for um, instrumentation, instrumental swallow assessment. So this is just a good resource for any clinician at any level in their practice. I always say it's good to load up our interns, our clinical fellows, our junior staff with things that can help them to become more proficient and more confident as clinicians. Um, And this is definitely something that I would place and uh, if we have like a speech office, if you, you can put it at, at the nurse's station as well, you can put it where multiple discipline, disciplines are able to access it and see it. Or again, you can make it a pocket reference and uh, laminate it and uh, um, use it however it works best for you. Keep on your clipboard or however um, is most convenient for you in your practice.
0: I wonder too. This is this is really helpful information, especially like if you're in, you know, a hospital setting. Really, any setting. Um, I wonder if this could help, like support, um, like insurance coverage. I don't know if that would play into it. Like, if uh, maybe a family seeking reimbursement for a clinical swallow study. If this is just more, you know, this is just um, additional information that supports the need for that. Does that make sense? I, I don't really know. I was, I don't know what I was thinking that was there.
2: Bad. Maybe from like the case manager, maybe they can use that from their perspective. I can tell you, maybe from an SLP's perspective, in my experience, I didn't use it like that. Um, I use it for example, um, like there was a a patient from a group home once that um, needed to have uh, alternative means of nutrition because oral feeding just was not safe anymore. Uh, it there was it was like a severe aspiration case and the group home just would not agree to signing off on it but it was just because they did not accept um residents who had feeding tubes so it wasn't patient centered or, or resident centered at all so it became a legal situation and uh i had to justify why this was ethically um or medically the best suggestion from the the team on why we're saying that the person should have had an um, alternative diet considered, and even continuing with recreational, feed, recreational feeding for quality of life, but things of that nature. But that's a good question. I'm not sure about the reimbursement stuff, but I, I can definitely see maybe like case management, because those are usually RNs, like they might use that information. Maybe other SOPs have used it before, I'm not sure, but I've never used it for a billing reason, Or I can't think of it at this moment.
1: I think like in my acute experience, I would use this sort of as my own knowledge to kind of feel like at rounds or when I'm reading the chart that I understand like if they're just like, oh, the hemoglobin is low, or their sodium is high, that is a difficult, you know, this is just an easy way to be like, oh, yeah, that reminds me that they're going to look like this. So then even thinking too, not always just for swallowing, but, you know, if there was cognitive issues or concerns, it's like, oh, well, surprise, they're like, their restless cell count is down Their sodium is this, this way or that way. And you can just kind of have Another a good understanding, kind of like you were saying. If you're thinking about doing an instrumental assessment, something especially with the modifieds, um, where I am, we really try not to do those unless it's a severe risk, or we're trying to see what their new baseline is. And so, like to me, I think I would use this like, well, they're not really at a baseline. You're not going to send them home when their sodium is all out of whack. So, like having those conversations to maybe at least on an inpatient model kind of advocate for or against like an instrumental, t- especially with timing, I have a hard time getting that through to doctors sometimes like this isn't the best time to do this. Like they're not actually doing well. So you don't give somebody a test when you know, they're going to kind of fail it. Let's wait until these things come up. So maybe that would be a way yeah, I could see using this for my own understanding and then to have those thoughtful, um, really specific conversations with doctors about things.
2: Yeah. This
0: is such a unique resource. I don't, we don't have anything like this. I, I love this addition to our library. Awesome. All right, let's move on to the next one. So this one is called closed position speaking valves in pediatric speech therapy to Sonia. You wrote this one. It's a one page resource, really cute graphics um, on the border there. Um, but yeah, this is talking about what it is benefits, um, how to use it, et cetera. So tell us more about this.
2: So um, there are so many types of uh, speaking valves that we may encounter in various settings and with various uh, patient populations. And I know sometimes um, clinicians are not always versed on how to use it based on their experience. And more importantly, patients and families are not really too sure on how to use it. So in making this resource, I was thinking about patients and their families And how they could help to carry over goals that we are doing with uh, increasing tolerance for speaking valve placement outside of the therapy setting. So many times when we're working on speaking valves in the acute care, um, rehab, any setting, um, there's a point, depending on your practice, where the valve is only pulling on put on by the SLP or by a respiratory therapist or nurse or whoever's trained to do so. And when the family comes to visit, the patient either has no voice uh, because their valve is not there to occlude the trach for voicing to occur there's no weak speech. Um, And, um, you know, research has shown that speaking about placement helps to increase taste and overall swallow function and safety. And uh, why would we wanna take that away from a patient when, Um, just because we're not there, you know, it's like their glasses, um, for lack of a better description. Um, So this resource could be provided to families who were trained, who've gone through training under your guidance, under the guidance of anyone who has to be involved in their training based on your setting, and um, who you want to leave with not, not just visual and verbal instruction and demonstration, and redemonstration, but also something that they can have in hand because people are human and it's not necessarily their skill and they forget. Uh, so this is something that we had in mind for, this is what I had in mind for this resource. And it just discusses what it is, the benefits of using it and how to use it. And I gave a few tips and strategies that I like to use with this population um, to help with um, tolerance, of valve place, placement. Uh, placing the valve on the trach can be uh, can cause a lot of anxiety for children who have had um, the trach in place for whether it's a day or whether it's months or years. It can be uh it can be it can cause a lot of anxiety and fear. So um, it's just a few tips and strategies on how to um, initiate that valve placement and some
0: voicing with it and um, swallowing. This is great to Again, I could see myself like having this ready to go in a folder. and then you know the setting that I'm in, I don't I don't come across a lot of patients with um, speaking valves, so I would pull this out every single time. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and I, I love the tips and strategies. Those are just extremely helpful. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. I agree. Like it's one of the areas of our field that it's hard to practice. Cause if you're, if you don't see it often, I feel like even though I see it sort of regularly, I'm a little bit rusty every time it comes up again, cause it's just not like my whole caseload is not doing this. And so this is a nice like starter resource. And it also kind of jogs my memory about things. And I, I like actually really your number one tip there, uh, just reminding everyone this feels extremely strange. It's not just like, oh, all of a sudden they're going to talk and love it. You know, just that setting the appropriate expectation that a lot of times it's anxiety provoking and weird the first couple of times till they get comfortable. So um, I really like this and agree. I think I would use this a lot and we'll use it actually because they, It's just not something that's always frequent, but it is very exciting and everyone gets their hopes up and all of a sudden somebody can talk that hasn't really been able to talk before, or there's been some period where they weren't able to. Um, And I think we have a couple other resources about them as well. So you should feel, you know, really good if you're in our library that you can get enough to kind of get yourself started if you don't have a lot of experience. So, um, but also, yeah, good for the parents too and caregivers.
0: Definitely. That's a good point, Heidi. It's nice when it's like a one page um, resource you can hand out. All right, let's move on to the article snapshot of the month, I believe. Oh, hey, Megan.
3: Oh, yeah. Hi, hey, I'm
0: back. I just wanted to
3: put a plug in for Passing They put a lot of resources into creating free content for therapists. So if you are providing a Passing Your valve for your patients and families, um, definitely seek out their resources um, because they do a really nice
0: job
1: they have a lot of peds specific stuff too, which is helpful. Sometimes, um, I'm in there a lot, actually.
0: <laughs> Good to know. All right. So one of our writers, Kate Hawkins, she writes an article snapshot every month, um, on a topic related to the content that was written by our writers. So this one is titled speech and phonological characteristics of individual children with a history of tracheostomy. And I thought this was fascinating because it's from 1999. And I think, you know, it's important to look at, um, Research done a while ago and see um, how it compares to what's been done recently. So I'll talk about just the takeaways from the article. Children who have undergone long-term tracheostomy are at risk for developmental delays, including speech delay. Prevalent phonological processes for this population include strident deletion, liquid deviation, cluster reduction, postfocalic obstruent omission, and velar deviation. Voicing errors and vowel distortions were also common errors noted. Clinicians should complete a thorough evaluation of phonological processes for all children who have undergone tracheostomy. Close attention should also be spent on voicing differences and vowel production problems. Clinicians must also consider the other factors impacting the child's development, including possible neurological factors, such as premature birth, need for ventilation, causing possible oxygen deprivation, and or recurrent hospitalizations um, in parentheses, impacting socio emotional supports. So I love how they just, um, they dived into, uh, or they dove into, uh, just the specific characteristics and patterns of speech, um, for this population. And I think it, it's important to note that this study was only done on six, the sample size was six. So it's small, um, but still, you know, worth something. Um, and I just thought it was interesting, um, just the specific processes that they found. Um, And they also mentioned that um, the speech characteristics were slow, but not unusual. Um, And then they really emphasize in the article to just do a thorough articulation assessment and really look at um, voicing and vowel production. And I don't know about you too, but um, I think a lot of times with articulation assessment in general, vowels get overlooked or they're not really assessed um, that, that level isn't assessed. And I, um, I think it's really important to look at vowel distortions. Um, so I thought this was a really interesting article. I would love to do more, um, searching for like maybe newer articles, um, with this population and diagnoses and see how, like, um, how it compares and if there have been any other articles, um, with larger sample sizes, I don't know what you all have read, but it was really helpful to, um, like have like a list of like specific uh, processes that you can see with this population and how it relates to some of the other stuff that we talked about. So yeah, I thought that was super interesting. All right, let's move on to our case study. So we always do a case study every month. It helps us um, tell you about some of the other resources in our library that relates to the case study and just talking about potential um, situations we might see in the clinic or hospital, et cetera um, in different ways to approach or just different angles, um, to approach those cases. So this is a two-year-old female who has a diagnosis of expressive language delay. She has just been evaluated and is recommended to receive speech language therapy twice a week for 30 minute sessions. Her receptive language skills and play skills are age appropriate within the average range. Her parents are both involved and want to attend all sessions and have requested strategies and ideas for home carryover. They are concerned that 30 minute sessions are not long enough and would like to understand why sessions aren't 45 minutes or an hour. And then we all picked some resources from our library that might relate to this. So, um, this was the one that I chose. It's a one page resource. It's called promoting early language through songs and nursery rhymes. And we all know music and singing are, um, it's a great way to support language development. Um, and I, the reason I like this resource is it's not just, you're not just telling the parent, Oh, just sing, sing songs with them. Like, okay, so how, how can I do it in different ways? Can I use props? Um, how can I keep it engaging? Do I do the same song over and over again? Um, so this resource list, um, just some bullets of like strategies and ways to engage your child with songs and nursery rhymes in different ways to support language development. So that's why I love this one. Um, And then it gives some examples of songs and rhymes, which I sometimes need. I'm like, okay, what's another nursery rhyme I can sing with this child? So I like that one a lot. Let's move on. I think um, to Sonia, you had a few um, of our resources related to this case study. So tell us about this one.
2: Uh, So I chose this one, um, the that I created this one, I think it was really cool because it lays out what's expected within each developmental stage. It has five stages that um is on the page. And I think it's good for parents who have the kinds of questions that these parents presented in this uh in this case study. Um and it also speaks to even questions about their concerns as to why the sessions are a certain length or not. And I think whichever uh clinician would working with them can use this to explain. Perhaps maybe the reason why it's it's short is because of their tolerance, their attention, um, their, their ability to attend for shorter periods of time, or to be more successful for shorter periods of time. Um, but overall, I like this because it lays out what's expected per stage. And the parents can use this to decide what activities they want to carry over at home since they are interested in knowing what they can do at home. So they can use it to create their own family-centered, home-centered goals for their little one. The next one. So um, this is something I had created for children who were ASL communicators, but the reason why I put it in this case is because I always think it's good to equip children with multiple means of communication. Uh, Many families think if you do sign or if you do AAC device, or alternative augmentative communication device that it's gonna limit a child's verbal expression or ability to use their voice for communication when research has shown that it really helps to boost their ability to use multiple modes of communication. So I would give this to the family to um, give them some ideas on how they can use signing and how they could use some, uh, if they may have a pet in the home or maybe they might wanna get something as simple as a goldfish. Um, which might not be so simple for some families, but just diff- different different uh, examples of how they could help their child to develop their expressive language skills without just focusing on verbalization. And I think there's one more. Uh, I, Heidi, did you do this one? Um, so this one, there's so many children are so interested in screen time right now, like. Whether it's their parents' phones, whether it's a television, whether it's an iPad or a, a tablet that they're walking around with, they're so um, interested in it. They're so um, skilled with using it compared to how we were when we were their age. So um, I know some parents are so focused on pulling it away when we could find different ways to use it, if it's a strength for them. So um, we can use some commun- some devices that they have already in the home as a method of communication, um, and as a way to help boost their 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 expression. So that's why I picked this one, because um, the author listed some ideas on how you could um, help with beginning language learners, developing language learners, and established language learners with their addressing their expressive language skills. And for a family who's so interested in helping to carry over goals into the home, I think this is a good one.
0: All right, Heidi, you chose two resources. Um, tell us about this one page resource.
1: Um, so this resource is called Strategies to Encourage Speech and Language Skills in Toddlers. Um, and then it says, remember, you are your child's model for speech and language. Um, so it gives just basic kind of environmental setting, like how to set the stage for some success here. So getting on your child's level. Uh repeat and recast, ask questions, and it emphasizes reading. Um, This particular case study felt like at least 30% of my early intervention (laughs) caseload. because you just have these parents that are like really anxious, really concerned, and you're kind of looking at the statistics here, you know, or the the breakdown here, like it's just expressive language, other things are going well. parents are extremely involved which is a good thing but i think they need the teaching as much as the child needs the teaching to sort of say are you actually like sitting down on the floor and playing with your child are you giving them a chance to to speak or i've had so many parents i used to have a cool phrase for like a funny phrase but i can't remember it off the top of my head where i'd be like you know they really don't have a chance to respond or or have stress because you have provided every option in a visual manner and so Why would they speak, you know, I think I would say like, they're smart, they know they don't actually have to talk to get things that they want and you're providing you know so this resource is a good starting point for parents like okay let's start with the basics here are you on their level, Um, if they say something are you responding back to what they're saying are you wanting them to say something different sometimes we ran run into that a lot where the response the child is giving is not what the parent thinks the answer should be and so this repeat and recast and then asking them questions um is just a good one and then anytime reading is always a um making sure they know that that is the best one of the best and easiest ways to kind of incite some more expressive language um, So yeah, that's the one. And I picked one other one. Um, So this is similar to the other ones we were talking about. It's called Encourage Language While Playing With Simple Toys. And it just lists things that most houses have or would have access to at some point. A ball. Like how could you, what words could you practice with um, a ball? Because I think sometimes parents too, when they're so worried that there's some delay going on, they forget Well, all you're ever asking them to do is say the word ball. You could ask them what color it was or like this one says making sounds about like the ball goes whoosh or wee or go, stop, throw, catch. Like trying to teach parents there's a lot of levels to any toy. You don't just label because we don't walk around as adults labeling everything. But it's funny because when you ask an adult to teach a child how to talk, they do that. They say like, what is this? What is that? It's kind of. This resource I found particularly helpful to maybe combat against that bubbles. I I have never not had bubbles be successful to get some sort of language, whether it's pop or ah or mine or more. So those are good ones. Um, blocks always good. Um, wind up toys are also. I think I'm a hundred. You know, ten for ten on those getting some sort of reaction from a child, and then like a stacking ring type of toy. So I think. When I read this case study, it reminded me of all the resources I wish I I had at that time in my career to just print and like hand out in mass. Like, OK, here we go. We're going to go through all these things to make sure the caregivers are doing what they can do to promote language, but also reminding them that play is play. I mean, that's how you're going to get most language. It's not going to be a scholarly paper that the two year old all of a sudden starts talking Um, I, when I was doing, it's making me laugh because I'm just having all these flashbacks. I worked in a small town and the town was a lot, it was, there's a big university there. So a lot of the parents were professors and like, they were up here trying to teach their kids like academic language. And I was like, no, we're here. Go stop. No. And also just thinking of, um, I know we have other resources on this too. We have quite a bit. So I tried to narrow it down, but one other plug about a case study like this is if you find a resource we have I can't remember the name but talking about how like refusing and protesting is also language not just willingly accepting every toy and activity that the parents provide them so um, I have lots of thoughts on this particular case study as well as the 30-minute session thing that's always a I frequently am having that conversation about that so I don't know what you guys run into I know sometimes it's insurance to try to get multiple sessions in a week because you can make more more cash that way as a practice but um also for attention span you know the the pc thing to say is like oh it's their attention span and frequency but I know the reality is sometimes different for families
2: <laughs> so I don't know good. what it's like go ahead, go ahead design you um, I don't know what it's like outside of New York right now, but in New York, there's such a shortage of SLPs, OTs and, and PTs as well, but there's such a shortage of SLPs. So a lot of children are not receiving services. So for me, even though I have a lot of parents who've, who've said like, why only 30 minutes? Like, you know, like we get that question a lot. I always love when a parent would ask or inquire about it because I feel like they're advocating and so many children in early intervention uh, at the EI or CPSC stage don't have that advocate because their parents don't know how to do it or they don't know that they can. So I always love, I prefer that they ask and have to explain the reason why it is what it is, then they don't ask at all. Because there's sometimes when I'm like, you know, I have to like nudge them a bit. Like you can ask, you know, your child is not verbal and has no, right now they're, they're severely impaired and they're punching you. They're punching themselves. They're hitting themselves again, their head against the wall because right now they don't have any method of communication. Your child is due to more than one time per week more than two days per week. So I love when they do try to advocate, and I prefer having to explain why their mandate is a lower frequency and and duration than what they would love to have. You know, but it's a question that we do get a lot. But I know in New York right now, post-COVID, there's so many children who need services and so little SLPs. Like, it's, it's really like It really amazes me. There was a point when we had so many SLPs providing treatment. I can't tell you why. I know a lot of people just don't want to go back to work uh, in person post COVID, but there's so many little ones who need it. And the parents just, you know, they just, they're just okay. They're just, because they don't know what to say. They don't know that they can ask. And they're just like, this is what they gave me. That's why. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think early intervention is maybe one of the most impacted of the pediatric spectrum. Cause like I have a lot, I had a lot of parents like, cause I was in there at the beginning of COVID I was doing EI. And then as it was sort of entering the like normal phase where you could start going back to the houses and things. And there were a lot of therapists that didn't want to go back into the homes. They kind of saw that this was because it is, it saves money and time because you're not driving all over some place or, you know, metroing around to different houses. And the burnout is so real for EI that it, it's, it's hard. I left it. I mean, it was burning me out. I was driving all the time and always on the phone trying to schedule things and had the productivity demands. Um, and you're just talking about. I mean, I know our research across not just for speech, but supports that these age from zero to three. I mean, that's when you can make a lot of gains if you're given support. So I, I, we see it too where we are. Uh, we get so many kids coming into the hospital, and then they're like, "Well, EI was supposed to start, but then they didn't have anybody that could come to my area, so it just never happened." And you're like, "Oh no, that <laughs> like." That shouldn't be okay, yeah. but like, what are we supposed to do? I mean, I, you know, it feels sometimes really helpless to try and help th- to find a solution.
2: It's true. I really hope that there's something that happens because I just think about, about the level of delays that children will have as they get older. Like this group of children, I hate to refer to them as the, the COVID generation, but that's what people are saying. But I hate to think of the level of delays and, and what we're going to see with them. By the time they get to like fifth grade, because of the lack of access that they're having right now, even the school age children uh, here, it's called related service providers, and there's such a lack of it right now. Or they're recommending that everyone gets virtual therapy, and this is probably a whole different topic, but we know that not every child is a candidate for virtual therapy, especially when they're a certain age and when there's certain cognitive when you're cognitively a certain a developmental level mm-hmm. um so i hope that there's a, a some kind of like answer for it eventually but um it just all ties back down to me being so happy when p- parents do ask mm-hmm. and even if it if it's like i have to answer a million times or like try to find a way to calm them down and rather that they do ask because these children need advocates they need people to advocate for them especially now in post-covid um America Mm -hmm.
0: and to add to that like I, I found like in you know in Tennessee there's a lot of rural parts like there are everywhere I guess in the country but um we would have families who would like you know have their evaluation and they'll say okay we recommend you know 30 minute sessions twice a week or once a week and then they say so I'm supposed to drive an hour to your clinic for a 30 minute session like that doesn't really seem like we're you know maximizing our time or is that you know enough and um so that's another thing to think about is just like accessibility for families and feasibility and logistics. And, um, is it worth, you know, for a 30 minute session? Um, and like you were saying to Sonia with, with teletherapy, like, of course it has its limitations. It's not appropriate for every family, but that did open a lot of, um, opportunity, I think for therapists and to reach families who maybe couldn't make it into the clinic or. Yeah. maybe do like one session a week in person and like another session, um, teletherapy. And a lot of times, like at all the clinics where I've worked, you know, you, uh, several of the kids that we see have OT and PT depending on their case. So they could maybe as far as scheduling, they could do like, you know, back-to-back sessions. I don't know how it is where where you all work, but we do that often in Tennessee, at least we have like, they have speech OT and PT or whatever order it's in. And then, Co-treats sometimes, I don't know if you guys do a lot of co-treats, um, insurance is like, at least where I am, they usually don't, um, allow that. Um, or I don't know about the reimbursement, but just a lot of factors for sure. Um, and I agree. I like when parents ask about, okay, why is it 30 minutes? Like, and even like the research, I see a lot of the research articles I read, like it, they'll say, you know, more research is needed on, um, duration and frequency of sessions for this particular, you know, disorder that you're treating. Um, so yeah, lots of good, good convo there.
2: Um so but- about insurance quickly. Um, something that I'm seeing now is uh, that the insurance uh, companies will refer their, will refer um, patients to you, right? So you'll be in your network and then they won't reimburse. And the reason why they won't reimburse is because they, they won't reimburse for anything more than 15 minutes, which is mind blowing because it's like, how much therapy? How rehabilitative can 15 minutes be for a child that has a severe apraxia or you know what or severe feeding aversion? How much can you do with 15 minutes? So what I end up doing with cases like that is I end up just, you know, just keeping them on the duration that I recommend and just don't get paid for the mm-hmm. amount that they're not paying for. But this is what it's coming to nowadays with insurance. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's because I always go back to Asha. I don't know if it's because um, it's not really pushed from our governing board the importance of what we, I don't know what that missing piece is, but I know that there are physicians and nurses who make decisions within these insurance companies. And many times they just, they're like, no, it's over 15 minutes or no, there's no medical diagnosis to support why they have a uh, expressive language disorder. So we're not going to be immersed. We can't approve therapy for this mm-hmm. child. It's just beyond, I beyond understanding.
0: Yeah, man, we need to have a whole episode of just ethics and insurance and ASHA and, uh, yeah, to be continued. All right. So we're at the hour mark y'all let's wrap it up. So thank you um, everyone for listening in. We really appreciate you. We can't wait to gather next month um, for another great Therapy Insights Resource Roadmap show. We wanna thank everyone, all of our therapists for making therapy informative, empowering and person-centered. So until next time.